0: This is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast, and I am Mike Riccio, longtime personal trainer, professional strength coach, gym owner, and most importantly, a devoted modern father and husband. I've been fortunate to learn under some of the most intelligent minds in health and fitness over the past 15 years, as well as work with amazing clients and athletes. What I've most fallen in love with over the years is the power we have over our lives. The power to decrease risk of disease and injury, the power to reach our true potential, the deep abilities the body is capable of when all aspects of health are working simultaneously. On this podcast, you will learn the importance of preventative health and how to optimize your habits to optimize your life. Hi, listeners. This is Mike. We're going a little different today, a little different. Today, I have on Carrie Knowles, who is a writer, I guess is what you would generalize her occupation. She's a writer. She's a Writer for Psychology Today, she is the author of nine books. And we today are going to talk about Alzheimer's, dementia, and what it's like for the caretaker. Now, again, this is a little different from our our normal theme, but not so different, right? This is still about lifestyle and health and recognizing symptoms and, well, one, maybe trying to live better to not get to some of these points but also what it's like for the person behind the scenes you know i lost my father at an early age alzheimer's and dementias have been rampant in my family so to hear carrie's story about her mother to hear her talk about the research and the other people that she has gotten to meet over the years and the stories it's it's very relatable to me I, I know many people this will also be relatable for and the truth is at some point you know we've we've probably all run into a loved one who has suffered at least at some level from a dementia and you know God willing it, it's for those who haven't you never have to but it's a very real thing and it's something that you know if, if you can't relate to now you're going to be able to at some point so today's episode was fascinating for me there's a lot of great takeaways it'll just make you think. You know, and, and again, maybe it'll help, maybe it'll motivate you to think about your health currently, or maybe it'll just act like a support group where you'll just feel like there's other people going through what you're going through now. Either way, I hope you enjoy it. As always, please let me know what you think. Please rate and review the episode. And most importantly, enjoy. All right, listeners, we are live with Carrie. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. What a delight. Could you give
0: the listeners just a little background on, on you and your history with Alzheimer's, specifically in caregiving and caregiving, and what got you up to today?
1: Sure. I have been a freelance writer for a long time, and I uh, have written hundreds of articles and magazine, newspaper, whatever, and I have nine books in print, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. And a number of years ago, uh, in like in the late 1990s, my siblings, I have uh, two brothers and a sister, came to me and said, you're the author and nobody is writing about the impact of Alzheimer's on the family. And we just feel that that's really important. So we'd like you to write a book. And they gave me permission, which was wonderful, very generously. They said, you need to tell our story so that other people can understand what Is involved and also to not feel alone, to feel as though other people have experienced the same thing. And so that was, you know, um, I have a very good relationship with all my siblings. We have a, which is so important Mm -hmm. in caretaking with Alzheimer's. There is that stupid little brother that we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, (laughs) You know, there's always one in the crowd who says, I don't think there's anything going on here. I think you're nuts, you know. But they were so generous and so kind, and we talked a lot about what all of us were feeling, what all of us were experiencing. And, you know, we talked a lot, and I decided that the best way to approach this book was to weave our stories into the research that was going on, the you know, important knowledge about Alzheimer's. And so it took me a number of years to write this and the book you'll see goes over a, a long time period. And so I started the book and then the book kept on, You know, as things were happening, the book built more and more and more. And the book was originally published by Random House in 2000. And uh, the week after the book came out in print, my mother, our mother died. And then, the, you know, I did a lot of traveling all over the country. I talked to all kinds of family members as well as uh, medical professionals about the other side that they don't know. Um, and doctors and nurses and caregivers, professional caregivers were really surprised by what we found out and what my book has to say, which is in general, you know, from onset to death, we do know is on average 17 years. It's a long time. And that usually family members do not take, do not either acknowledge or go to medical professionals until year seven or eight. You know, those first seven years are kind of, well, maybe something's wrong. Maybe something isn't wrong. Maybe this is, maybe I'm wrong. We don't know what's going on. And people don't want to... Come to the decision as family members to say, we must do something about this until a crisis occurs. Uh, you know, and a crisis often is a really horrible automobile accident or the Alzheimer's victim gets out of the house, one gets lost, the police bring them back, they get disoriented or the caregiving just becomes so sporadic and so complicated that the family says something is really wrong. And so the doctors don't see the Alzheimer's victims until year seven or eight. And that's, they used to think that's when it began. And so when family members would tell them all these stories, they would be like, yeah, 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 whatever, you know. And now the same Weeks that my book came out, um, a big research study out of the University of Hawaii came out about the failure of family members to, you know, understand the first seven years of Alzheimer's. And the head researcher from that study got my book and he wrote me and he said, if I had read your book before I would have saved our team 10 years worth of research. He said, you understood what took us 10 years to figure out in the laboratory. And he said, why do family members fail to do this? And my response to him was, because it's, it's you make that admission, you right. come to that situation, then you're the one left holding the bag. You have to do something about it. And so that's the issue. Anyway, the book came out in 2000. Our mother died. I went on the road and talked about this book to all kinds of people. And then after our mom died, I realized that there was this time afterwards that caregivers who have put in 10 years, 17 years, whatever, they need to be on a road to recovery themselves. And so that's why when the initial book went out of print, then I added new chapters to this about after the death of the family member to help people understand that you don't one day start this caregiving and then a few years down the road, stop the caregiving and have your old life back and that you have to then reach back. In a lot of ways, it's interesting. In a lot of ways, it's a little bit like what we're going through now with with COVID. It's, you know, people have change the way they're living and they keep on saying well we're going to go back to the other way and the other way isn't there and you have to re-establish your friendships you have to re-establish your work you have to re-establish all these things and that's the very same thing that people who are caregivers with Alzheimer's have to do you know because for a while you know friends bring food bring help offer help but 17 years worth no yeah, no it doesn't happen no. You know? no. And that, yeah. And it's it's not out of um, lack of love, no or care or concern. It's just like, wow, this has gone on too long, and I have other things going on with my life. So right. So it's it's a very honest book, and my siblings were very generous and allowed me to talk about the things we did wrong, and we didn't do everything right. This is not a book where somebody does everything right. This is a book where we floundered, because we had no place to go. And what I hope with this book is it provides people a place to go to figure out, yeah, where are we we now? Where are we now? What's going on?
0: Yeah, well, and and like a lot of life stages, you're, you're learning as you're going. This is something that you've prepared for just in case you didn't take emergency. This isn't CPR, where you kept taking emergency courses and recertifying every year for the one-day incident of having to be a caretaker for something very specific. And, you know, <laughs> you know, Kerry, you know Kerry, you and I shared, we, we, we share the passion in this project where, you know, my, my father didn't have dementia, but he died of a brain tumor where a lot of the symptoms were very similar, especially at the end. My grandmother, my great-grandmother, my great-aunts, There is. we just have a history of, of Alzheimer's and dementia in our family. And I spend so much time on the lifestyle of prevention. And I've read so much on the care of the patient. But you're right, and your family was right, that nobody really, the caretakers do so much. And it is, it's, it's something that is not talked about a lot. And I watched my mom do it. I'm currently watching my aunt and my mother take care of my grandfather later in life and it's a lot, and it's a toll. So I, I'd like to dig deeper. I'd like to break this up into maybe three phases, You know, maybe kind of a, a before, during, and after. And if I go back to before, you know, we talk about the denial stage, and you're right. Once, once we acknowledge it's real, you have to deal with it for real versus just keep putting Band-Aids over things, yeah. which we do in a lot of phases in life, but especially with this. Could you talk a little more on the symptoms maybe people don't think about, like there's the obvious there's there's, they just get lost and don't know where they live anymore. They're like, those are very, very Mm. concrete signals of something is obviously wrong. What are the signals that maybe we're either not seeing or are too small where we're like, it could be a problem. Could not be. So I'll just keep putting it on the back burner.
1: That's a great question. So um, let me, where do I start? There are, talk a little bit about the physiology of it. So one of the things that happens, this is, of course, everybody knows it affects your brain, affects your memory. And so everybody's always concerned, you know, people, friends of mine, always say, okay, I forgot a dentist appointment. You know, do I need, and I'm like, I said, what were you doing that week? You know, no. And my response often is I hold up my keys and I say, what are these? And they say, those are car keys. And I say, Great. What do I do with them? And they say, you start your car. I said, fine. You don't have Alzheimer's is when you don't know what the keys are for or what they do or what you should do with them. So let me go back to the brain. One of, the, there are some very, very fascinating things with Alzheimer's. One of them is that one of the very first centers in the brain that gets damaged is the same center that gets damaged for people who are alcoholics and they crave sugar. And we don't quite understand the physiology of that. Why um, being an alcoholic makes you crave sugar. And of course, alcohol satisfies that. If you ever go to an AA meeting, you're going to see a long table full of chocolate.
0: Yeah, treats.
1: Black coffee. Yeah, you know, why, 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 why? Why? Because um, the brain and the body begin to crave that. So there's little things like that, like all of a sudden, your grandfather or your, your husband or your wife or your great aunt all of a sudden becomes a sugar bug. She wants those cocoa cuffs. She's got a drawer full of Snickers in the, you know, kitchen, whatever. And all of a sudden there's a higher consumption of sugar that hadn't happened before. Interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I tell people when you go visit your mom over Thanksgiving, open the cupboard. If you see four boxes of Cocoa Puffs or you see, you know, hoarded candy bars or you see a freezer full of ice cream, you need to stop and think about that. Is, is that what always happened before? You know, was there always that before? The other thing is it's a, it's a strange kind of forget forgetting. It's not like, got your dentist appointment. But that happens too. But it's also like in like year four or five, somebody can, like my mother, this is a good example. One day in the basement, she was doing something and she closed the door on her laundry room. That's simple. You do it too, you know, you close the door. And then she didn't remember what was beyond that door. And so she started doing all of her laundry in the kitchen sink. Wow. Oh. Because she said she didn't have a, di- she didn't have a washer. She, and she said to me, I, I never had a washer dryer. I washed all our clothes by hand. And you're like, uh, no, you didn't. So it's that kind of thing. The other thing, which so there are things that happen naturally when you age. Like, um, let's say you've been a great cook and you loved to cook, and you had big family gatherings, and you loved to cook, and you you were always the one who made the cookies, you were always the one who made the best spaghetti sauce, who did all that and who entertained. And all of a sudden, you stopped doing that, okay? Hold that thought. You have a father or a husband who loves to golf, and every weekend, whenever the sun was shining, they would go out and golf. And all of a sudden, they stopped golfing. I'm too tired. I really don't want to do that. You know, it's all that walking. I don't want to do that. Well, it isn't all that walking. It isn't all that. It isn't, oh my, it's too much work to cook dinner for 20. That's not it. It's they've forgotten how to do that. And they don't want to, it becomes confusing. So forgetting complex tasks are key. So another telltale thing that people don't put together is inappropriate dress. So let's say it's 90 degrees outside and you say, hey, mom, let's go for a walk. And mom says, let me get my coat and my hat. And you go, it's 90 degrees. I might need my coat. So she puts a coat on. She puts a winter hat on. She puts her gloves on. And you go out and it's 90 degrees. And you say, hey, you want to take your coat and hat off? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's like that inappropriate behavior. So what happens with the your mother who quits cooking? That's a complex series of tasks, you know, getting the ingredients out, getting the right utensils, knowing when to fix what, and you know, what should go with what. That's a complex series of tasks. The other complex, as is golf, you know, you got to get your golf clubs, you got to get your Golf shoes, you've got to get, you know, the whole thing. If you got your cool golf shirt, whatever, you gotta to drive to the golf course, you gotta get a caddy, you gotta do it's a complex a task, a lot of things. Right. And way confusing in the early stages. Here's the real giveaway where you, you know, because that's kind of hard to sort up. Because if your dad says, Oh man, I'm tired, you know. Hey, my golf game's been off for a while. I didn't want to do that. Or your mom says, I don't want to cook for 20. Well, that's, you know, you could say, yeah, cooking for 20 is a lot of work. Yeah. <clears throat> so sure, I understand that. I'll cook for you. So that's an easy one for us to kind of gloss over and say, yeah, she's 70 years old. She doesn't want to cook for 20. Fine, fine, fine. Here's a complex series of tasks that people often overlook. Taking a bath. And all of a sudden, if you have a loved one who is not bathing regularly, they say, oh, you know, I I don't go outside that much, blah, blah, blah. You know, why do I need, I don't need to bathe every day. You know, once, whatever, you know, they don't take care of those tasks. Bathing is a complex series of tasks. You have to know what room to do it in. You have to know that you've got to take all of your clothing off. You have to know you have to turn the water on and get it the right temperature, if it's going to be in the tub or if it's going to be a shower. You have to have a towel. You have to put shampoo on. You have to use soap. That is a complex series yeah. of tips that we take for granted. We just say, take a shower. And Dad says, F. I didn't do anything to Dad. sitting watching television all day. I don't I don't need to take a bath. Come on, dad, you haven't taken a bath. Oh, I took a bath yesterday. You know? You're going to fight with your dad over that? The answer is no. You're going to fight with your three-year-old over that, but you're not going to fight with your dad over that. Yeah. And so what that does is, because you would fight with your three-year-old, you'd say, uh, Jamie, into the bathtub you go, because, you, you know, you take a bath every night, you know, and tonight is a night. And you're going to take a bath and put your in pajamas, you're going to go to bed. You are being a parent to your child. But if you have to all of a sudden say, dad, get in the shower. Come on, you smell a little, you know, or whatever. All of a sudden, that is a role reversal that is super uncomfortable. And do you want to take that? Is that that the hill you want to die on? And the question, the answer is no.
0: Sure, right.
1: So those are really early moments that most people go eh, am i gonna am i gonna am i gonna wrestle my dad into the shower no am i gonna wrestle my three-year-old into the shower yes right am i going to become the parent to my parent mm, maybe not right
0: well not yet right because I, 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 mean, really right. Right. <clears throat> I think that's a good transition point because it's a it's a great thing you made me think about in our in our pre-talk was, you know, if we switched to, to the during, to maybe post-diagnosis or when cle- things have clearly progressed into the, the later stages.
1: Yeah. And I want to talk to, about, that. Let, let me, I, yeah, I, do, I, I do want to talk about that flipping over. That's so important. Okay.
0: Yeah. It's a fascinating thought because it's the other thing that people don't realize with caretakers is they're not just taking over for the parents. They have current tasks. So most caretakers are still full-time workers probably still parents to some type of youth or adolescence of some age um yeah. you know depending on how young they were when they had children so so now you are just juggling and, and there's still household items to do there's there's just there's so much not to mention what financial stage in life is the caretaker in cuz that could take a toll as well so when you think about the the balance and the juggling to add in what almost becomes like another child, at least at some stage is mind boggling. And that's the only way, you know, when you said it, I thought back to to our experience and you're right. It was, I watched my, my mother, especially, you know, she did most of, of the work with this, but my aunt also start to talk to my, my grandparents, my dad differently. It became a taskmaster. No, you do have to do this today. No, you do have to eat you do have to eat your vegetables because and again my dad had a had a glioblastoma, but it was very similar where he was he constantly craved carbohydrates, starches, sugars. Yeah. And it was like, no, you, you do have to have something else. You do have to have some type of protein, you do have to have some type of vegetable. And he would fight her on it. And she was like, No, this is important because your health is diminishing. Yeah. So so to, to, to now, if we can switch over to that role reversal, I just want people to really understand. the the total capacity of what is happening when you take on this role of caretaker for a a loved one, especially a a parent or whoever it might be.
1: And so that's one of the reasons why people don't want to take on that role because their plate's already full. They got spaghetti falling off their plate. You know, they are just full. And the other thing is, which is very interesting, is the dynamic between, you know, you're dealing with your children, okay, And all of a sudden your child is watching you deal with your father or, you know, their grandparents and they're watching it and children are not dumb. And they're like, what's going on? So it's not only that you have a physical thing, but you have an emotional thing and you have to get to the point where you can talk to your kids about it. I want to talk a little bit about that, you know, that, that flip over that, that time when people kind of go, all right, you know we have to do something. We have to do something. And that very often, like it did with us, involves a car accident. And so the whole issue of do I let grandpa, do I let great aunt Susie, do I let my spouse continue to drive? Whoa, that is a toughie. And How do you deal with that you know and that question came up a thousand times when i was on the road with this book sure and you know the other thing is they could they could kill someone right they could kill themselves but they could kill somebody else right and the other thing is a car is a complex series of taxes back to the bathing thing you know you have a brake and you have an accelerator and you have a radio and you have buttons to roll the windows down and you have to stop at the corner before you turn and what does that red light mean if you're having trouble figuring out you know what what the car keys mean imagine when you come to the light and you see you know red yellow green mm hmm which one's which you know What do those mean? We're so used to the symbolic things like the stop signs, the whatever. So it's that car accident, which often is the the tossing point for most family members. It's like, oh my God, we can't do this. And then they have to take the car away. And so we, we had, yeah, the week before my mother had her car accident, my, we were becoming aware that my mother should not be behind the wheel of a car, you know? And my mother was very proud, very stubborn, very smart. And talk about, you know, just just think of your three-year-old as being five foot 10 and, you know, 2'10 and you're going to wrestle him for his pacifier? No, Mm-mm. the car keys are the pacifier for you, for the parent. So my sister and I, and I have to just say, I adore my sister, and we have a very good relationship. And she, she called me, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? And I said, okay, fine, because I had tried to get the keys away from her. And we, we we talked about, which some people have done, we talked about paying somebody to steal the car, which we, you know, and what we did, so my mother had an eye exam coming up, and we knew that her eyes were not that good. And so my sister previous to the eye exam, goes to the eye doctor. And he was somebody that we had all gone to as kids and said, look, we have this problem at home. Mom has, um, we think she has dementia. She hasn't been diagnosed, but we're pretty sure she she's in the early stages of dementia. Next Tuesday, she's got an eye exam with you. And we don't think, we know that her vision isn't very good. So we would like you to, and she's got to have this eye exam because her driver's license is up. We would like you to flunk her on her eye exam so she can't get her driver's license. So what do you think happened? Now, the ophthalmologist is the same age as mom, and he looks at my sister and says, how dare you? How dare you take away your mother's independence? And what makes you think that you know what's going on? And he dressed her down for 20 minutes in his office yelling at her saying the nerve of you kids doing this to your mom i've known your mom for 40 years and she's fine she's fine she comes in on tuesday passes her with flying colors my mom calls me i passed with flying colors getting my new driver's license the next week she gets into an intersection sees those three colored lights can't figure out which one is which And she broadsides another car. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. My sister called, you know, and then the police came and the police knew my mom because she ran this. um, It was a small town. And the police knew my mom because she ran a program out of our dining room called, you know, uh, Fish, uh, Project Fish. And it was uh, sort of like the beginning of Meals on Wheels. And we used to deliver food all over the, the town for people. And so the police and the fire department knew my mom. So the police come, see my mom has been in this accident. And they called my sister, who's two times over, and to say, you know, what do you want us to do? And my sister, you know, says, tow the car. I don't care what shape the car is in, tow the car. I'll be there in 20 minutes. I'll be there as fast as I can get there. I'll take care of mom. You take her to the station. You have that car towed. You You know, so we go and... We get mom from the police station and we take her home. She's not harmed, neither in, in the other car is probably totaled, also, and her car is gone. And so, what we did, and at this point, my mom didn't understand money. And, you know, that's a wonderful thing that quit understanding money. And so, we got a bunch of $5 and $10 bills. We got a couple hundred dollars worth of, you know, money. In small denominations, ones, fives, and tens. So it looked like a big wad. And, um, you know, my sister a couple of days later came in and said, Mom, you know, that car, your car was totaled and we, we dealt with the insurance company for you. And this is the money that you're getting for the car. And it was a couple hundred bucks. And we knew she couldn't buy another car for $200. So it was a cheap, you know, it was a cheap trick. And of course, the, the car wasn't totaled, but who cares? Right, you know? And that's how we got the car away. And you, I, you know, I always tell people, if you have any question at all about how, you know, part of it is that reactions are slower between the brain and your body, the reactions are slower for that reason alone. Forget that you're not reasoning well, but the fact that your brain is not sending out the signals fast enough to say, whoa, hit the brakes, or whoa, turn the corner, that's reason enough to take the car away. Yes. And do not let them drive. Once, this is very important for people to understand, once you have a positive, you have a diagnosis from a medical professional, and it is in the records that your parent, loved one, whatever, has dementia, or Alzheimer's, many, many, many doctors won't say Alzheimer's because it scares people. They'll say early dementia. And so many people say to me, oh, my mom doesn't have Alzheimer's. She has early dementia. And I said, well, okay, you might want to read my book anyway. So, um, you know, once that diagnosis is written down, and your loved one has an accident like that, in the eyes of the law, that loved one with that dementia diagnosis is not treated as an adult. You are responsible for your loved one's actions. So we were responsible for that accident. Right. Right. And that is a sobering. And I tell people that and I say, look it up. I'm telling you the truth. Yeah. You become responsible. Right. Instantaneously, you are the parent. Right. And if you're, 15 year old got in a car and did the same thing you would be responsible for it
0: right right well you know i think about that word independence that the doctor used because that's the word that was in my head and that is the struggle for the caretaker is is that as much as everything is logical yes it is not safe i should not but this it, it almost feels like it's one of the last things you're taking away and of course there's other things but it's one of the last major things so it's such a final task, such a, it's such a, after this, that yeah. it's, it's like we're retiring them to this life at the table, you know, exactly. for, for the sake of a better example, which is really hard. So as much as the, the answer is clear on what you should do, the, the moral part of the equation is very, very clear. I do understand the difficulty of it because you're trying so hard, not only to cure your own. Selfish feeling of, well, if they still have that, maybe it's still not so real yet, but yeah. also, but also the struggle of, of them, if they do understand in any capacity, what that means of, I just, I just lost, I just lost this last time ever in my life. I've never going to do something that I did every single day, five times a day for decades and decades and decades. It's hard. Yeah.
1: Very hard. are well, you so... Imagine that's hard for a family member. So, you know, like I said, I would I traveled all over the country and I talked about this. And I spent a lot of time talking to Alzheimer's units and helping, um, you know, staff members understand things. And I had a standard talk that I gave that was similar to this, whatever, for them to understand the struggle that the family was going through. So I was in a very, very, very beautiful, you know, assisted living unit somewhere and uh, I mean it was a gorgeous unit and I began to talk about the car and you know the whole issue and all of a sudden the whole staff got very 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 quiet and so I said so is there something you want to talk about and they said well well we were in the dining room you know it was uh, that's where I was doing the talk and they said well we have a resident who is the sweetest gentleman, just the nicest gentleman. And he had like an old 88, you know, one of those big cars. And that was his pride and joy. And he just would drive it around the parking lot. And we just couldn't, you know, it was the pleasure of his day. He would get up, we we could shower him, he'd get his clothes on, he'd he'd eat breakfast, and then he'd get his car keys, and he would drive his old 88, in a circle around the building. So one day, you know, months before, same routine: got up, got dressed, blah, blah, did the whole thing. Gets his car keys and gets in his old eighty-eight. He was driving around the building slowly, and they said he only he drove very, very slowly. So we didn't think he could. You know, there was no harm, no harm. And there was a beautiful bench right outside a big, big picture window in the dining room. And that's where people would walk and they would sit because it was there was a garden there was very lovely and he's coming around the building and he is going up the aisle and he and the two people, fortunately, on the bench were agile enough to get off of the bench, he gets confused what's the accelerator, what's the brake, he hits the accelerator runs over the bench, and lodges his car through the window of the dining room. Wow. Now, this is a care facility. And they are still letting him drive. So there there was a very sobering moment. So I said, I hope you'll never do that again. Right. And, you know, and we talked about how hard it was for them not to take that privilege away from him. Yeah. And I say, can you imagine what it's like for the family? Right. And I say, you are so lucky that nobody was killed. Right. Yes. I mean, can you, can you believe that? I mean, it's a true story, you know? So that is, that is a point beyond which you can't go back. You are now, you, you have now crossed the line into the middle years.
0: Right. Right. Well, and, and speaking of not going back, that's another great point you brought up was this is not a disease that has a remission period. Uh-huh. This is not a disease where once it hits a certain point where you get days that are just like, oh, they're back to normal for a week or so. And then, you know, for the most part, once the major symptoms arise,
1: they're there and they're, and they're there to stay. So there, there isn't not, the break. No, there's no break. What's confusing about it is it's not an on-off switch in the course of a day there'll be moments half an hour 45 minutes where all of a sudden there's this normalcy that happens and you are standing there going am i crazy am i crazy have i made a mistake should i have taken the car away from dad he sounds perfectly logical right but then two hours later no so so no there is no remission it doesn't go away there are moments in which there's clarity and then it's back to it's back to where it was before and you know when that happens people get so freaked out because it's like okay my stupid little brother has been telling me that i'm crazy maybe he's right dad seems normal why am i doing this you know Eventually, the stupid little brother, by the way, does get on the wagon with you. But there's that moment where they just, you know, they just do not want to lay claim to what's going on. Now, you also have the situation where, let's say, Mike, that you're the one, it's your parent, and all of a sudden, you have this caregiving job that's being handed to you. Your spouse is looking at you saying, um... What about our family? You know, so there's a dynamic that's going on between husband and wife in a caretaking situation. And the the non-blood relative is saying, how long is this going to go on? You know, what are we doing here? We haven't had a vacation in two years. You know, you, you know, all... You know, all you can talk about is what am I going to do next? You know, Hey, look at me, look at me, you know? So you've got that dynamic. You've got the dynamic with your three-year-old and your six-year-old and grandma's, you know, playing with her food and talk about a recipe for stress, you know? It's hard.
0: Uh, Yeah. It's your... (laughs) Yes, I I just can't help but just keep thinking it back to different memories and, and times at the table, like you talked about times at dinner. And, uh, you know, I, I smile too, because in, in a way you, you miss, you miss just having that person around, even when it wasn't great, because there were these little moments of, of clarity or where they, you know, they got their sense of humor back for a moment and, and you cherish those moments when they came because they were, they were fleeting to transition again. You know, like you said, 17 years on average. Eventually the day, the day you dread comes and there's this, how do I explain it to those who don't understand? There's this mixed feeling of almost some relief and you feel terrible thinking that because you have been on such a rough journey. And so has the person who actually had the illness and make no mistake, they're the person who, they're the ones losing their life. So it's that's the saddest thing ever. But there is this moment of almost relief when you see someone that had been struggling for so long pass. And then as you said, all of a sudden, something that took up so much of your time from a task standpoint, not from a person standpoint, but just from a, a daily task standpoint, they're just gone. Those tasks are just no longer a part of it. And that really became who you were. How do people, how do, what? in your advice, how do people re-enter that next stage of life where they get so much time back in a way, for lack of a better way to say it?
1: That's, well, first you have to deal with the passage. And I have to say, we were so very lucky. We had a young, but a very, uh, a very young, but very thoughtful and savvy funeral director when my mom died and he you know took us to his office and um set us down and he just talked to us very gently very calmly for about an hour and he said um you know this is very sad but i it's i want to tell you you have permission to feel relief and you'll be sad beyond the funeral, but I want you to go afterwards. I would recommend that you go afterwards and you go out to dinner calmly with your family and you talk about your mother and you, um, have, and you laugh and you try to bring her back, not, you know, and you can laugh about the, the crazy things that happened, right. but also tried to to retrieve who she was when she was not an Alzheimer's victim, and he was, and he said, "You're going to have a hard time because there's going to be this void." And the, I think that the key thing is your you your identity, your personal identity is, "I am a good guy. I took care of my mom. I'm taking, you know, I'm a caretaker, and I've done a great job." And he kept on saying, "You've done a great job." And now you need to go be somebody else. And you have to remember who you were and you have to find a way to be somebody else because you're not a caretaker. And you need to do that. Um, I was in Florida speaking at a, a lovely, a very beautiful Alzheimer's unit, uh, a dependent, uh, assisted living community and, um, This happened quite frequently. There would be one person sitting in the back of the room. And this was a weekend thing where I I was there for three days. It was a big whole thing about Alzheimer's and caregiving. And there were drunk companies there and this and that. And and so I was there for the whole week and and, uh, for the whole weekend. And there was this woman in the back of the room. And she just sat there by herself every time. And she waited until everyone had, you know, the last event had lined up to get the books autographed and whatever. And she was the last one in line. And when she came up to me, I knew because I had been there, you know, I'd seen this before. And she said, we just signed my book. And I looked at her and I said, when did your loved one die? And she said, how did you know? And I said, I just know. Tell me when. And she said, a year and a half ago. And I said, what are you doing here? Why are you here? She said, I don't know what else to do. This is what I've done. She said, I I'm an, I was an only child. My father had passed and I moved into my mother's home and I cared for her. And I left my job and I left my bowling team. I left my friends because mom was a full time job. <laughs> And I've done this full-time job for 12 years. And I I don't know what, I, I don't know what else to do. I, you know, I'm an Alzheimer's caregiver and I just keep coming to these support group meeting things. And I said to her, I said, I want you to stop doing that. And I said, I want you to tell me, what do you, what do you want to do? And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, what have you ever wanted to do that you have? I said, You're you're retired now from your job. You don't have a job to go to. What do you want to do? And she said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, is there anything you've ever wanted to try to do? And she said, well, I, I think I think I would like to try making pottery. And I said, great. Where do you live? I got my phone. Let's find a place where you can learn to do pottery. So we looked up, found a community center, and I said, take a class, learn to make pottery, meet some new friends. And about six months later, I got a box in the mail and it was the heaviest clunkiest pottery you have ever seen with a <laughs> thank you and it's like she didn't it's like it, it's different for everyone how you reclaim your life but it's just like what we're going through now how are you going to reclaim your life after after you know covid goes away because you know two years we're in two years now two years is a significant amount of time to have let go of stuff mm-hmm. so, we used to do we're going to have to find new things to do, new ways, and right. that's exactly what a caretaker
0: has to find is sure. new. Sure, I mean parents go through it, in obviously less of a morbid way, but but you know empty nest syndrome is a very real thing too, where that's all you knew was taking care of a child, and phase by phase that looks different until until that don't till they become independent, till they move out of your house, they go off to college, and you know obviously that's a it's different because they're still. Alive, you know, they're still in your life, but it's still a difficult transition. So transitions in general are really difficult. This is just the ultimate one because it's so finite. It's so final. It's just the the person is gone.
1: The empty, you know, so the empty nest, you know, and everybody recognizes that as okay, well, the empty nest syndrome, well, this person is struggling, but nobody recognized the empty nest syndrome of caregiving. Right. Nobody nobody calls you up and says, So, hey, let's go out to lunch, you know, let's let let's talk about that because we don't really know we don't really know how to do that. But we do know that um when Mary Jane or whoever, you know, all their kids go off to college and you know, whatever's gone on, that there's this sad moment and that friends usually do come to that rescue in a way. And say, okay, let's talk about, you know, or, and you're right, the person is still alive. They call you and say, hey, mom, how's it going? Right. And and there's nobody calling you and saying, hey, thank you. How's it going? You know, and uh, boy, wouldn't that be great if we could come up with like a phrase of, you know, the empty caregiver syndrome or something like that where that it's talked about and recognized and and it has a label it has a name and it has a program you know it has a way to do that you know because there's so much loss all the way along there's so much loss and it's a staggering amount of loss you know people the Alzheimer's victim loses their memories, but the trick is they also lose your memories. Right. You know, because you've depended on your parents to say, "Yeah, you're right, Mike. I remember when you played second base, yeah. and that was that great game." And all of a sudden, you know, you've got your mom, and you want to just, you know, have a beer or whatever, and say, "Well, what's going on here?" And you know you want to talk about that great game when you were in twelfth grade or you played in college or whatever, and your mom looks at you and says, oh, you never played baseball. I didn't go. You know? So right. your memories get lost at the same time, their memories get lost, And people don't expect that. You know We sure. don't realize that our memories are dependent upon other people verifying them. right. Right And yep, we did that,
0: so you know so here's a question for you. You know, I noticed with me, it took me a while until I started remembering my dad healthy mm-hmm. to where my dreams he was sick, my no. memories he was sick and uh-huh. and mine was not I did not have a a ten year experience. You know, my dad was diagnosed and passed in eighteen months, and The later stages were probably four to six months, you know, so it's not like I had years of, of taking over memories yet. That's, that's how I remembered him, unfortunately for so long. And I, and I don't know how long it took, but it it probably took quite a while before when my dad came up, the, the person that came in my head was his 50 year old, healthy stuff, healthy self, not his 59 year old sick version.
1: That's, that's so wrong. That's so young to die yeah. at 59. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You could have lost him then, you know?
0: Yes. You know, and, you know, and now that any situation is, is better than another, but he never met a grandchild, you know, and, right. and, and now, and now there's, there's eight of them running around. So, you know, there's so many, he, he didn't see weddings yeah. of, of his kids. You know, he didn't get to walk his daughter down the aisle. You know, I, I stepped in to, to walk my sister down the aisle. So there's a lot of life stages he missed. Where, again, not that it's better, you know, I if I compare it to my grandmother, who had, had a, you know, she watched her son pass, so she had a very hard end of life. But, you know, party, it makes some peace with, she raised a family and she saw things to later in life. And until having to watch her son pass away, you know, she had what most would call a fantastic life. So you make some peace with it, as hard as those final years were with her you made a little bit of peace with it to where someone who maybe has an early diagnosis an early passing or as a simulation station as my dad, not only are you dealing with this. And to be fair, my mother was the caretaker, Well, we helped as much as we could, but I wouldn't label myself as the caretaker in this, in this situation. My mother was the one that, that held that burden and held that, that title. But it, it just, it was a different type of transition because every single time a big life event came, it was another remembrance of who wasn't there and who, what else he was missing. And fast forward eight years, my brother just had a son who we named after my oh. father, which is wonderful. But you know, now every time you, you know, it's just, again, it's just, it just keeps coming up in different ways and in a way you, you really never become numb to the loss. It's just different. It just gets different as you go.
1: Yeah. We had great advice when we when we moved our mom into the Chelsea Methodist home, into the Alzheimer's unit. The director of the, the facility met with us and said, she said, I'm going to give you, she said, I'm going to ask you to do something because all of my, my our brothers and we were all there together. She said, you're all here together to do this, to move your mom into this situation. She said, um, at dinner tonight, I want you to, Write your mother's obituary while you can still remember who she was when she raised you. And we did. And that was the best piece of advice. And of course, it was 10 years later that she died. But, you know, we we sat there and we talked about who she was. And we took notes and we basically put together her obituary when we put her in the Alzheimer's unit. I mean, you know, I mean, there was more to it at the end, but we, we took that opportunity where we could still, we didn't have to reach back so far to reclaim who she was.
0: It's what a fantastic idea. I'm, and this is a, a plug on a product that has nothing to do with me whatsoever, but my wife found this and it's this, I think it's called StoryWorth. If, if if that's it, if it's not, I'll I'll put in the show notes differently. But it's electronic, so via email, my mom gets a new question every week about oh, yeah. her past, about her life, and she answers it. And at some point, they they the company puts it into book form, and you can buy the version of the book. So you know there will be ways for my my great grandchildren, you know, or her great grandchildren, excuse me, her great grandchildren too, to sit back and actually read her writings that she's writing now in her mid sixties when she's completely sharp and, you know, and, and doing all this, but it was, I, it's the greatest gift I've ever seen, especially for someone that has experienced, you know, what, what it's like to lose someone young and to not have a lot of that. Cause you know, every week I read the emails cause they come to all of us, they come to the family. So right now they mean a lot. Cause they're like, Oh man, I haven't thought about that story about grandma in forever, right. but at some point in another, you know, God willing 30, 40 years, you know, reading these are going to be just incredible. So I, it's, it's what a great idea you just said, because that reminded me of this and it was credits to my wife for finding it, but it's, it's it, one day we are going to be very grateful that we did this.
1: I think that's terrific. What a wonderful, wonderful gift that is. That's a great idea. Yeah. You know, that's something that a family can do, you know, the holidays are coming up and, um, you know, get somebody to record them. And, you know, you don't have to have a scribe. You can just, you know, have a, you know, you can buy, you can do it on your phone or you can, you know, go out and buy a small cassette recorder and just stories. That's great. That's wonderful.
0: Yeah. That's something that doesn't happen in the same way it used to either. You know, my dad had the the recorder out at every party and we still have those cassettes somewhere that, uh, that we can go back and watch. It's different when you just have a collection of 3,000, 10 second clips on your phone. right? You know, I, I, I don't know if, if that somehow gets uh, put into a, a memory box. I guess it could, yeah. um, but it's not the same as saying, you know, seeing the label like second birthday, right. And putting it in. And you never saw my dad because he was always behind the camera, but you heard his voice here and there. And um, but that's something that, that people should bring back. It's a good point because I, I think we're going to, the next generation is going to wish they had more of, more of those things.
1: Right. right. We had. Yeah. Have, um, yeah. My husband's uh, my husband's family um, had to leave Germany uh, you know they're Jewish and they had to leave Germany during World War II during um, Hitler and all of his cousins same thing and um, so we did something um a few, Couple of years ago, where all the cousins came to our house and they all brought their memorabilia of their parents, um, you know, that they brought from Germany and, and, um, uh, both my, uh, father in law and one of Jeff's uncles were Richie boys who, you know, I don't know if you have heard of them. They were young German Jewish immigrants who came over and who got uh, joined the army and became a special force. And they were trained to translate documents, interrogate, you know, German prisoners, and they became sort of a secret force in the um U.S. Army. And they were trained at Fort Ritchie. So they were called the Ritchie Boys. Okay. And there- great book come out about them called The Richie Boys. And um, I think it's called Sons and Sons and Something, rather. But if you just Google Richie Boys, it'll come up. Ah. And, um, so anyway, they got together, and they recorded all of that, and they had it all transcribed. And and it's become this huge document where they have documented their parents, you know, leaving Germany and coming here and what went on. And, you know, they served in the army. They did this. They did that. And and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And um, they now continue to have what they call the cousins meeting. Um, once every couple of months, they do a Zoom meeting with all of them. And that's one thing. Zoom has allowed us to keep in touch. And, you know, we shouldn't lose that. We should, especially if you're a caregiver, um, you may not be able to leave your house. You know, that's the other thing is, um, you can't really leave an Alzheimer's victim alone. Right. Um, I have, you can't do it. So you become a captive, you know, you become sort of entrapped in this, not only in the role, but in your house, you know, or in the situation. And, um, you know, you should take full advantage of being able to have, you know, like we're doing a conversation where I can see you, you can see me, and to at least feel that connection. Um, yes. People become disconnected. And yes. that's so hard, you know, emotionally to become disconnected like that.
0: If there's one positive we can take out of COVID, maybe it's that. Still uh right, you, like, utilizing this virtual connection that we've we've become accustomed to using more.
1: Right. As much as yeah. I do not, I'm not totally in love with Zoom, and I'd much rather be having a cup of coffee with you and talking about this. Yes. Yes. You know, it works. It does, it does. work.
0: It does. And it's enabled me to meet some amazing people I never would have. You know, if you combine social media and Zoom and, and the technology part of it, which even though I'm you know, at the very, very beginning end of the millennial title, um, I'm not very good at it. It's been a blessing because I've met some amazing people like yourself. So Carrie, this has been fantastic. There are so many great takeaways, so much to think about. Um, I have a handful of people specifically who I know are going to, who are probably were a couple who I know are in the middle of dealing with exactly what you're, what you're talking about. And, uh, I'm looking forward to them listening to this. Where can people find you? Where can people find the book?
1: So the book is on Amazon. Uh, it's called The Last Childhood, a family story of Alzheimer's. And you'll see there's a couple of different editions, and you want the purple one because the purple one talks about. Re- so I purposely made the other, you know, the new one, just a plain purple cover so I could say, get the purple one. Get the purple, get- one. <laughs> get the purple one.
0: It was easy um, to find. So
1: very, yeah, but there's another one that has a picture of my mom and uh, my daughter and I. And, uh, you know, kind of at the very beginning of um, her Alzheimer's, but so you can find me. You know, you can find the book, and you can find me on. I have a website called, and it's C, like the letter C, C Jane Work, C J A N E W O R K dot com, C Jane Work, and you can hear about my other books. I also write a, uh, which is. Such an amazing gift to me. Um, I was asked three and a half years ago by psychology today to write. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just a writer. I'm somebody's grandma. Um, (laughs) said, we really love your writing and we want you to write a personal perspectives column. And, um, you can write about anything you want to write about. So you can go to, um, on, you know, it's their online presence and uh, personal perspectives. And my column is called Shifting Forward. And uh, the first 50 columns are coming out as a collection in May uh, and it's titled Shifting Forward, you know, and uh, it's, and it covers all kinds of issues, caregiving, what to wear, aging, COVID, things that are funny, things that are not so funny, um, yeah political divides in our country and so that you know they've given me i mean i've been a writer for 50 years and uh usually an editor will say we want you to write an article about this and so in psychology they said we want you to write these articles for us but we you write about whatever you want to write about. i said well let's cool. what, what is whatever you know and they said anything absolutely anything and um cool. i was breath you know I was like like, what really so once a month a new one comes out and um it's great fun for me and it's they're all reflections on what's going on in the world, what's going on with me personally, uh what's going you know, but whenever I do a personal one, it really does connect back to um a larger community. Um so yeah and then so I write both fiction and nonfiction and that's where you can find me. So CJ work. Dot com. That's who I am.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, that that will all be in the show notes. So I've, it'll be very easy for people to find you. Carrie, again, thank you for your time. This has been amazing. It's been amazing for me to be able to talk about some things I don't normally get to talk about as well. So thank you. Listeners, please, please check out Carrie. Go to the website to check out the show notes. And uh, Carrie, just thank you. You're welcome. All right, you, you stick around, everybody else. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. Find more episodes like this at www.lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com and visit www.marhealthandperformance.com and at Mar Health and Performance on both Facebook and Instagram for more great content and information about programs. Have a great day. and See you next time.